presented by Syntax Advisors. Welcome to ETF TV, your insight into the world of exchange-traded funds, issuers, and investments. I'm Margot Tahrikova, and joining me today is Alex Perel, Head of ETF Services at Scotia Bank, and Deborah Fur. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Alex, it's great to have you on the show. Many people have been asking, what has been the impact of Russia invading Ukraine and the closure of the Russian market on ETFs and other securities? There's a lot of precedent for ETFs trading and country funds trading, even when that local market's not open. And the most prominent example, and probably the closest analog, would be the Arab Spring situation in Egypt, 2011. However, the major difference with the situation here is this whole layer of sanctions where the Western world and Russia are imposing sanctions on each other and there's sanctions and there's counter sanctions. So in addition to the Moscow Stock Exchange being closed, one of the things that has happened, and I believe this happened on the 28th of February, Central Bank of Russia essentially decreed that local custodians cannot settle trades for foreign holders. The effect of that is to make it essentially impossible to have funds taking in assets, delivering assets, any kind of creation redemption activity, and the ETF structure can't rely on any sort of primary market activity and arbitrage to the underlying market at all. Now, even if the stock market in Russia reopens, that sanctions regime might stay on. It's created this really unprecedented situation where Russia-exposed country funds really don't know what they have or don't have. Effectively, what it does is it makes them into a almost a closed-end fund structure. You know, we can make the assumption that at some point they'll go back to being full-fledged ETFs, but we don't know when, we don't know how. And in this situation, ETFs trade purely on supply and demand from existing holders supplying and new investors piling in. And you can have this disconnect between what the underlying market might be worth or when it's worth and where the ETF is trading. Now, we've seen this movie before. We've seen it in the Arab Spring. We've seen it in certain situations where there's multi-day holidays in some jurisdictions. But we've never seen it in a situation where there's been this much global sanctions overhang and this much uncertainty around when that would clear. So Russia-exposed assets are in a state of limbo. Many people think the index providers should be taking a stance as to what the indices should be doing in terms of continuing to hold Russian equities and bonds. What has happened on the index provider landscape? It's an interesting point because the index world is really all about, can you measure the performance of that underlying asset, but also can it be investable? And when you have a situation where local settlement is impossible, and local settlement is impossible by essentially a government decree, index providers will say, well, that's not an investable asset anymore. And what they've done, and I think all the majors have done this or are in consultation are doing this, they remove the assets at zero price. So what the index community has said is the assets we had in the index are now worthless for the purposes of the measurement of performance in that market. It's as though this market no longer exists. ETFs and funds in general track an index. They don't replicate an index through magic. They hold assets that are in proportion to index weights. And so what that essentially means is that if you hold those assets and you value them also at zero, you will continue to track. I think the index community has done maybe the only thing that was open to them because how can you measure index performance when you can't settle trades and you can't be sure that the market will reopen and you also have this company by company and region by region sanctions regime, like it's super complex. And we've also noticed that some of the exchanges stopped trading outside of Russia. Can you talk a little bit about why that has happened? When you have fund managers writing down the assets to essentially zero and you put into that 
the underlying market can't be settled. And the index providers have also said something is worthless. But then you see assets trading at prices that are very, very far from all of these sort of indications, there becomes a public interest issue. Does the average investor understand that what they're buying here is probably not worth what they've paid because the arbitrage mechanism is broken and there is no expectation that it will be back anytime soon? So when it comes to regulatory halts like this, you have to pick where you're going to draw the line between allowing price discovery to happen on when markets reopen and investor protection for individuals that may not be in a position to have all the information or all of the facts and figures and might be relying on an arbitrage mechanism that right now, frankly, does not exist. Have you seen the situation impact other types of securities, options, futures, and has it impacted commodities? The commodity market is in its own state of disarray and fear, uncertainty, and doubt because we're not really sure economically what will happen to the commodity market globally. And that's not an ETF discussion. That's a global macroeconomic discussion. I think the big open question is what's going to happen to options on VanEx, Russia, country fund, RSX, where there's a million contracts outstanding or something along those lines. And it's not clear whether those options can be exercised. And if they do, what happens to the parties to those options? Because if they can be exercised, someone is going to become a holder of an asset that is potentially worthless and may not trade again for years. Somebody else will become short that asset. I think that's also uncharted waters. The answers I've received are very unsatisfying. I think people don't quite know what's going to happen. And I think we're going to have a lot of precedent coming out of this on how to handle a similar situation like this in the future. And we're going to be looking at this one for years to come as a case study on just how we can endure a crisis of this magnitude in the ETF industry. Yeah. And to be fair, it's not just for ETFs, right? It's impacting mutual funds. It's impacting uh -huh. active funds. So ETFs are not alone. I think people are just looking at it because they're more transparent and how are they handling it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was really great to be here. Debbie, can we talk about some of the other news in the ETF industry? March 9th marked the 32nd anniversary of the listing of the first ETF. And that first ETF was listed in Canada, March 9th, 1990, the TIPS ETF. It still exists, although it has been rebranded. In other news, we did see that we had 20 new ETFs come to market, 47 new cross listings. And if we look at data for the end of February, we see $106 billion of net inflows coming into the ETF industry. When we look at January and February combined, we've had $182 billion of net inflow, which is the second highest first two months of the year inflows, only behind 2021 when it was $224 billion. We've had 33 months of positive net inflows. The majority of the money is still going into equity-focused ETFs, mostly into the U.S. We have also seen, though, that some people are putting money to work back into gold, which, as you will recall, at the end of last year, commodity products in general had net outflows. Thanks so much, Debbie. And thanks again to Alex for joining us today and to our sponsors, Syntax Advisors, and, of course, to all of you for watching. To watch prior episodes and to see news from the ETF industry, visit us at etftv.net. Thank you. ETF TV News does not provide investment advice nor recommend products.